broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Very good morning, team. I mean, what could what more could you want on a Friday? The football is back. And, uh, Joel, you're heading off to the football tonight, aren't you? Yes, we're going to go and see our beloved Magpies take on the Western Bulldogs. And, and lose again. No. Oh, <laughs> now, now, you said what more could we want? Well, just a win. Yeah, we want a win. Yes. And we wanted to bury that dog, Trelaw, right? Yeah, because you know, he was such a bad person at our team. We wanted to get rid of him so badly. Uh, actually, I actually, I actually hope that Adam Trelaw has a good game today, but not that good that he, uh, that, that we uh, aren't able to win. You feeling positive? Me? Uh, yeah. Unsure, actually, given, um, given what's happened over the preseason with the turnover of players and, and how the Bulldogs are, are trending. I'm, I'm not too sure how this is going to play out. I'm just yeah, excited yeah. to see the contest. And what about you, Louis? Are um, you going to be watching tonight or not? No, not tonight. Why would I watch Collingwood no, play the Bulldogs? You don't really care. No. <laughs> no, I'll be watching on Sunday nights uh, where where the Eagles play. We're playing the Suns, so a bit of a, a soft warm up for us. Don't all, be too all... sure, Louis. The Suns oh, have got a great oh. opening round record. Well, okay, there you go, there you go. And uh, they, they beat you last year in round one, but that was up there, I think. Uh, well, it was, yeah, it was it was up there. It was the first round. It was round two, which was yeah, the first two. round after the shutdown. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we won't take it lightly, that's for sure. Um, and uh, much like um, uh, deciding whether to buy a new share when it's at the IPO, I find that there's just so much data that you could go through in the first round of football to actually get a sense of who's who and where's where and who's got form. Oh, I, I just would rather um, just get into the games and then uh, and then make my mind up after a few matches, get some data before before we uh, truly see who's the better team or not. Make an informed decision. Exactly. That's what I prefer to do. Uh, there's no fun in that. <laughs> and, and, Brett, tonight you guys are actually – you're going to go to the football, aren't you? It's not watching on TV. You're actually physically going. Yep. I'll be sitting on one side. Joel will be sitting on the other. And we'll, well that's probably way a good thing. Other. <laughs> <laughs> Never ends too well when you guys are sitting together. Huh? Yeah. Oh, there's we'll be been a text message where it has. We'll be firing text messages at each other. Yeah. Here we are as old men watching the football. Why can't they just hit a mark, hit a target for the club's sake? Football being back. Steph's back. I am Steph, back. Steph, yeah, Steph, 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 Steph. I did. Steph. I did make a cameo on on the uh, end of last last podcast, but I don't think it made the cut. So. <laughs> but it is good to be back. Yes, good to hear. welcome back. We yeah, miss. thank you. All right, well, look, guys, we might get into the first topic for the day. Now, um, keeping things very light and uh, positive, I think I'm going to start with uh, start with you, Louis. Your oh, topic yes. this week is thinking about death. Oh, that's <laughs> keeping it light, isn't it? <laughs> very light. I am. I have been thinking about death, and uh, and and personally. Um, I don't find that there is too much that's fun about dying, but there is a lot of fun in planning the dying. Uh, <laughs> there's so many intricacies and little tidbits and things to be aware of and uh, um, variations in, in people's affairs and, and how to plan it. It's just one of those, um, uh, one of those jigsaw puzzles where um, it's just a lot of fun to put these pieces together. So, um, so yeah, let me let me go through some things. Um, so, m when people pass away, they're going to have an estate, whatever assets they've got. Um, they they fall into this sort of pool of assets that's going to get distributed to their beneficiaries. So you've got different mechanisms that are working here. You've got the law, which says anything that this person owns uh, is in this estate, this pool of assets, uh, and there needs to be legal triggers. For those assets to then pass on to beneficiaries. Um, if there's no will in place, 
Uh, well, then that person uh, is is subject to the rules of the state in which they live, um, and uh, and those assets will be distributed to beneficiaries according to a state's formula. Uh, but someone needs to have the legal authority to control that estate. Um, if someone has a will in place, then um, uh, then that person is called the executor. But if a person doesn't have a will in place, well, um, various parties can apply to the courts for the role of what's called administrator. But it has to go through this additional court process. So uh, even if you think, well, I don't really have um, much to dispute, do I really need a will? Just by having a will that nominates someone to be your executor, you're making that process a lot easier because the court process is, is a much smoother one when the will is there and the will says, my executor is this person. If the will's not there, then that person has to assume, well, I think it's going to be me who's in control. I'm probably the closest relative or I'm the spouse or whatever. So they have to apply to the courts and the courts actually have to approve the appointment of that person as administrator. Mm. So then this person's got power and they have to follow either the state laws if there's no will. And if there is a will, well, they have to follow the instructions of the will. So usually your will is going to have certain triggers and instructions and things for how that money gets distributed. And then to make it even more interesting, a superannuation account does not automatically form part of the person's estate. Really? No, it doesn't. Because superannuation is actually a trust structure. It's an okay. entity in itself. It's uh, it, it looks like it's an account in your name, but it's actually a trust structure and it has a trustee, which is the, the company that controls the super funds, and you are a beneficiary of that trust. So it's not necessarily your money. Mm. It's in the control of the trustee and the superannuation trust has legal processes to follow. So there's a different set of triggers and you can set that up so that there's a trigger to pay your superannuation money to your estate so you can have it end up in your estate if you plan it that way. Or you can plan to say, well, actually just pay the money straight to my beneficiaries. And that's what you get to do with the death benefit nomination that you typically got get on a superannuation fund. But here's the thing. Superannuation, not only does it end up being a person's largest asset when they're approaching retirement. So, you know, people will end up with with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in their superannuation accounts to distribute in this way, which might be outside of their will. But when people are at the start of their financial journey, just about everyone in their very first super funds automatically has some life insurance put in there. So most people with the superannuation funds are talking about a minimum payout from super of like a quarter of a million dollars or more. Mm. And in financial advice, as soon as someone gets a, a partner, a home with a with a mortgage and some children, we generally do a, a life insurance needs analysis that says if a person passes away, you need to pay off the mortgage and you need to provide ongoing income for your surviving spouse who has dependent children and can't necessarily be a full-time caregiver and a full-time worker. So there needs to be some, some extra income to pay the bills. And we would typically end up with an amount of life insurance to pay off your average mortgage and to provide an average income of maybe a million, million and a half uh, dollars and sometimes up towards $2 million as a life insurance amount. And typically we would structure this to be owned by a superannuation fund because it's more tax effective, uh, which means uh, effectively discounted insurance premiums because of the tax savings. So for a lot of people, the payout that we're talking about from super is more than a million dollars. So that's where these mechanisms become really interesting. Um, if we end up with that kind of money in an estate that needs to be planned for, if the person now in control of that finance 
they now need to start looking at, okay, well, what is this money for? Um, if I'm the surviving spouse and my partner's died, I'm left with a mortgage and I need an ongoing income for my family. Let's go about managing this pool of money in the estate. How am I going to do that? Well, I need to pull out, let's say, half a million dollars now to pay off my home loan, and then I need maybe $5,000 a month for the next 20 years. So after I pay off the first half a million, I'm still left with hundreds of thousands or more than a million bucks, and that money needs to be put to work in some way. If you keep it in the bank, it's going to earn interest. If you put it into an investment portfolio to get a better return, well, then you're getting a return on that. And you could easily have $20,000, $50,000, $80,000 worth of income from the investments coming off of that investment portfolio, and someone's got to pay that tax. Yes. So we get all these interesting things that we need to plan for, and there's ways that we can minimise that tax, and it ties in with the uh, estate planning structures that a lawyer can use. Um and it ties in with the superannuation tax regime. And I was dealing with a case um, just the other day where uh, a person has an ex-partner and has adult children. And the, the interesting thing there is you get this interaction between uh, a superannuation fund, the laws allow the death benefit to pass on to um, a, a spouse or a child but the tax rules are not exactly the same. So this person who's divorced, he could nominate for his superannuation money to go straight to his two kids, and that's allowed to happen under superannuation law, but the tax treatment is different. If the children are under 18, then that tax payment is tax-free. If the children are over 18, well, then there's an amount of tax that's going to be payable on that superannuation payment. Why Why do they set it up like that? How, how come if you're over 18, you pay a, a tax on it? That's just the laws. It's, it's the laws. Law. It's just that's a crazy right. law. It's, yeah. it's the tax law. The tax says, well, you're over 18, you're an adult, you're not a, you're not a, um, uh, you're not a dependent yeah. Yeah. on that person. Um, and there's there's an exemption if, if a person is... Um, uh, still reliant, like if a person's got a, a, a longer-term disability or something or or some reason they would be still con considered a dependent, then, then there's a rule for that as well. But generally speaking, most children, once they get to 18, they're going to have some tax payments on the superannuation benefit in the event of death. But that's not the, uh, that's not the, the rest of the estate, that's just superannuation. So then you get these things that a lawyer can do when they structure a will. A lawyer can have these equalisation clauses that gives the person in control, the executor, flexibility. So imagine you've got a wife and you've got adult children. You've got this situation where money is going to be distributed. If super money goes to the children, there's going to be tax payable. So you structure it so that superannuation money goes to the spouse, which is tax free. But non-superannuation money, which might just be the regular assets or bank accounts or investment portfolios, maybe that goes to the children because there's not a tax consequence on that. And so there's this real intersection between um, the, the, the legal triggers that get used in estate planning, how that money is supposed to flow in reality in terms of do I need a, a lump sum of payment now to pay off a home loan or do I need ongoing income over time? Or do I even need a structure where money goes to kids, but it doesn't get paid to them straight away? It has to wait until they're age 25, or it has to wait for a certain provision, or it's specifically for education expenses. I've dealt with one case where the elderly parents um, knew that their children were more than well and truly financially independent and, and wealthy themselves. So they actually wanted to skip a generation completely. Wow. Like all of their wealth go to the grandkids. Okay, well, grandkids are 10 years old and 12 years old. So if, if and, and you're in your 70s. So um, we're talking about this potentially happening right now uh, to be prepared for it. How do we have those triggers? How do we have those mechanisms? Um, you speak to a lawyer about how the actual cash flow is expected. 
And then we look at it from a tax point of view. If there's going to be a million dollars plus sitting in a trust account, how do we distribute that tax to be for the lowest taxable uh, beneficiary or deferring that tax for a period of time? Um, so there's there's the management of that as well. So anyway, it's it's a giant jigsaw puzzle and it is fascinating. Louis, I was going to ask because it's funny, we were having this conversation at work over who has a will and probably uh, of the five people I was speaking about, three of them didn't. Do you find yep. that's quite a common a common thing? It is much too common, yes. Oh. Yeah. And it's, well, the unfortunate part of the situation is that um, a, a good will that has these structures that I'm talking about is expensive. And the people who suffer more than, well, what are the right words? Um, anyone who doesn't have these structures in their will um, is going to have an estate that is worse off mm. for the most part. There, there's a few people out there with a few financial situations where not having a will, eh, there's probably not too much financial consequence. Is that um, due to age, would you say? Is that somebody that's just starting off? Because we were talking about sort of people like juniors almost in our, our workplace the other day and, and talking about they just naturally said, well, it will go to my parents. And I guess from what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, correct. It takes is a process to the whole thing. Huh? Yeah. So people with no uh, no partner and no children, mm. um, financially, what's going to happen? Um, well, it's going to be it's going to be messy to work out. Mm. Um, and, and and that's pretty much uh, that's the main situation. And maybe this other case I was dealing with where a person is uh, is divorced um, and the children are adult children. Um, financially speaking, that money is going to go somewhere. Uh, yeah. So you, that person would want to have a will to make sure it goes to his children and not to his ex-wife, if, if that's yeah. his intention. Mm. Um, but financially, the tax is going to be whatever the tax is. There's no, mm. there's no difference between those beneficiaries in in the taxes that's going to be payable. And that person in particular was not talking about a large estate. Yeah, right. Whereas if we were talking about a large estate, well, then the proceeds of that estate could trigger tax in the hands of beneficiaries or tax to the estate. Mm. Um, maybe there's capital gains tax. Maybe there's a superannuation balance. Um, but we weren't talking big numbers, so it, it didn't make a big difference. But I would yeah. say that 95-ish percent of the population will have a better financial result for their estate if they have a will in place. The yeah. problem is you don't get that benefit unless you die. Most mm. people don't like thinking about their own death. Well, I was going to say that's half the battle, isn't it? Because to be perfectly honest, Joel and I have had to do a will and thinking about your own mortality is not something that's it's really fun to, to think about. No. Um, nor all questions that lawyers ask you about how you how you want to go, like do you want to be cremated or do you, do you want to be buried? It's kind of a confronting um you know, process to go through, which I actually found it very uncomfortable. It, it is. And as humans, it is our instinct and our nature to actively not think about our own death because it yeah. is part of our own survival instinct mm, mm. to have a, an underlying assumption that we will survive. Yeah. Interesting, Louis. I, uh, going through that process, I found the process actually a little bit different to what Steph did. Um, I, I felt as though... Uh, thinking about my mortality and the state in which I would be leaving her in was actually a, a responsibility uh, to make sure that the affairs were in order and that Steph understood exactly all of the various assets and entities and, and how they all work and come together and how they would all flow in a way that would make it easy for her to be able to um, administer, you know, our affairs or her affairs in the event that I'm no longer here doing that, uh, just given the role that I, I, I play as being a financial advisor. So mm -hmm. so I, I found that it was actually more, I felt as though it was almost like a, a, a duty that and a responsibility that I had to make sure that this was in place. Uh, but other people come at it from a different different perspective, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. to me it was just stressful because I was thinking, you know, what happens if Joel passes away? What happens if I pass away? 
you know, who 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 does the money go to? It was such a uh, yeah, it was such a very different process for, for Joel and I. But um, mm. I'm glad mm. you can sort of think about it by you know being more strategic. And I guess I couldn't take my emotion out of it. So. Well, well, this is really interesting right here. This is a case of psychology and, and human behaviour because, yeah. Joel, what, what you're talking about is exactly right. What you found is a reason to do something mm. which has greater weight than the reasons to not do something. And anytime people are in a decision-making situation, there's the things that they're – usually the uncomfortable things are greater motivators than the comfortable things. Yeah. So for Joel, Joel was more uncomfortable – in not moving forward, yeah. so wanted to move forward, and a lot of people are more uncomfortable to think of the things they have to do if they do move forward. Well, I suppose psychologically it feels like you're going to speed up your mortality or your husband's mortality by even talking <laughs> about it, which is the weirdest thing. So that's, I mean, that's, again, you come back to psychology. That's how it how it sat with me. Yeah, um, yeah. And then anytime you've got a situation of, of two people having to make that decision, um, in sales, we deal with it all the time. It's even harder because you might get one person motivated to go ahead, but if you don't have the mm. other person motivated to go ahead, well, then yep. you can't. So with estate planning and, and having a will created, you got to get both parties motivated to go ahead and then they have to pay the fees in order to do it. And estate planning is not cheap. Even if you get a simple will, yeah. which is not going to get the financial benefits of all the planning that I'm talking about, for which you need a complex will, even a simple will is a few hundred dollars. A complex will with things like a testamentary trust, um, even if you don't have a business um, or, or if, if you've got a straightforward situation, um, two people who are employees, no businesses or trusts, you've got super funds with life insurance, uh, you're talking about a few thousand dollars in, in fees here yeah. for something that you hope will never happen and probably yeah. won't happen. Well, eventually it will. So eventually it will. Yeah, that's right. But most people don't pass away when their children are still under 18. So most people yeah. will do this will and then have to do another one in 10 or 20 years' time when their children are adults and then yeah. maybe do another one when, uh, when their children have grandkids or adult grandkids. Well, so, that was my, my next question, though, to you, Louis, as well. And I, and I know that you're not, not a lawyer, but, um, you know, obviously at, at post offices you can buy a will kit. How much do they really, you know, do they work? Um, are they as watertight as, you know, just going down and getting one of those will kits and spending your $30, $30 and doing it that way? Well, you know what the will kit is? It's no, a, not really. <laughs> it's it's a marketing brochure. Right. Because at the bottom of the will kit is this statement, which is if you are unsure, if you have questions, contact us at such and such law firm. Okay. So what they've done is they've created a template. And yes, the template works if you follow the instructions as far mm -hmm. as a simple will goes. You yeah. can't do the complexities. And there is a chance that even if you've done it, you've done it in a way that is not legally valid. Mm. Um, but they know that if they sell 100 of these will kits through the post office, they're going to get five phone call queries for people right. who will then pay their law firm uh, the the fees because they realise once they've got the law the, the the will kit I don't know what I'm doing or hang on I've got this situation that does need legal advice yeah yeah so that's what the will kit really is let's mm. uh, let, let's call it appropriately um, yeah. can you buy the will kit from the post office yes you can would it be legally valid if you follow the instructions to the letter then yes it'll be legally valid. Um, what that will achieve, it will achieve the money, uh, it, it will achieve the person to be the executor having an easier court process and not going through so many challenges. So the process will be easier. The second thing it will achieve is the money will get to the right people that you want it to. But what it won't achieve is any um, tax benefits or any uh, longer-term control benefits. By that, I mean it's very hard to structure an ongoing income stream mm -mm. from one of those wills, which means you won't have the great tax uh, outcomes um, and you won't have the flexibility of control outcomes as well. Yeah. 
Yes, a, a will a will kit is appropriate for a very simple set of circumstances. Uh, but as soon as you start to introduce businesses, superannuation assets, trust assets, anything in that sort of you know realm of uh, of ownership structure, a, a will kit is going to be very difficult to be able to get that drafted in the way that's going to adequately deal with those um, those those other assets. Yep. So. Um, yeah, they serve a they serve a purpose for a very narrow, specific set of circumstances. But mm. uh, you know, for the for the investment that you're making, and for most people, the cost of a will is probably not much more than you know one point one of a percent or even less of your total assets. Mm. So you know if it if it if it's you know point one of a percent of most people's total assets, and yet it creates all of this certainty and perhaps even all of these tax advantages. I mean, you think about it, the, the, the tax rates on a superannuation death benefit that's paid out to a non-financial dependent on the taxable components are 15%. So if you're talking a million dollars, that's 150,000. What? Yeah. And, and what you wanted to try and save a couple of hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars? Yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. it, it just doesn't make sense. Mm, that's right. Yep, exactly right. And uh, and and you mentioned business entities, but you also mentioned super funds. And and, and like I said, as soon as someone has a, a home with a mortgage and children, um, they're tending to have um, more than a million bucks in their super fund. So if you think of your typical young family, they're they're probably strapped for cash, or they feel strapped for cash because they've um, they've probably had uh, one partner with time out of the workforce for a period of time, um, and uh, and then as financial advisors, we say, well, you should have this life insurance as well, and they think, well, how the hell can we afford life insurance on top of all of our other bills? Well, we can have it actually owned by your super fund, so it comes out of your super balance. Great solution, but by the way, you probably need to spend another two or 3,000 bucks on legal fees. Oh, Jesus, where are we gonna find those fees? So so that's that's a common situation that we face, and unfortunately, if you want the benefit, you you, you got to have the will. Now, just before we finish up, I was just going to ask two questions. One is, how often should you update a will? Great question. And that is probably more complicated than on initial thought. So it depends on how well the will is written. There's a few times that you definitely need to update your will. Uh, if you get married or get divorced, then your old will is void under law. Oh, well, this really? is Victoria law anyway, and I'm yep, pretty sure yep. that applies in many states. Um, unless your will is written in contemplation of marriage or divorce. So oh, okay. if you're about to get married and you're writing your will right now, you can still do it. And you can say to your, your lawyer, we're going to get married and the, and the lawyer will say, okay, this is written in contemplation of marriage. And there you mm. go. It's going to be valid. Or if you are a person who is separated now but not divorced, you can write a new will, which is in contemplation of a future divorce, and your will will be valid. Right. You can write a will today uh, as a single person with no kids, and you can make provisions for future children if you want to. And you can yeah. say, well, in theory, I'm going to divide it to my spouse only until my children reach 18, and then I can, I'll do this. And that will will be valid for as long as your situation is valid to the will that's been written. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a few, uh, a few common times that people will update their will, uh, and that is generally when they have kids, they'll need to redo their will because the terms haven't been allowed often that's the first time people are writing their wills in the uh, anyway so they'll get their first wills generally when they've uh, when they've had kids when kids uh, are close to reaching adults then people will generally want to redo their planning for uh, for tax yeah. purposes but also the legal definitions do change over time and uh, if a will is worded in one way then there has to be a few wheel, a few years for people to actually die with those legal wordings and then have those legal wordings tested in court 
to see mm. what the outcomes might be. So I would say uh-huh. if your will is more than 10 years old, you've probably got some old legal wordings in there. And maybe it's even five years you should be uh, you should be looking at refreshing and revising your will to make sure mm. those legal provisions uh, are still achieving the thing that needs to be achieved. Yeah. So if you if you're in a situation where you've got a higher amount of wealth and you've got a complex set of financial affairs, like if you've got an ex-partner or a, 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 a child to a former family um, who needs special medical or personal protection for some reason, if you've got a lot of complex legal triggers, then you should probably review those legal wordings every three to five years, not necessarily with a new will, but just asking your lawyer, hey, do those legal provisions still apply? In, uh, in today's legal language. So okay. there's only and, one and just that I want lucky to last. Yeah, lucky last oh, no, question, Steph. No, no, you go, Steph. I was just going to say, if anyone, if anyone, you, you've you've whipped up any feelings about some um, somebody going out and, and getting a will now, what should be the first step? Where should they sort of approach? Is it any kind of lawyer, or do you have to source somebody that that really deals with estate planning? Um, lawyers will typically have a specialty of some kind. Uh, and estate planning is um, is a pretty common specialty amongst lawyers. Um, I I tend to favour lawyers that particularly do um, wills and estates, just because they're doing it for you know the 40 hours a week that they work uh, for the 48 weeks of the year or how many weeks of the year a lawyer works. Uh, so I would um, I'd prefer not to use a, a small law firm that has only one lawyer that does wills and conveyancing and family law and contracts law. That would probably be the only thing that I would uh, look out for. Um, but there are heaps of lawyers um, and some really good lawyers that we know of at UGC, so contact us if you, um, if you wanna be put in touch with a lawyer. Uh, but there's, there's lots of very good lawyers with this specialty. Yeah, so, I mean, certainly a topic that no one wants to think about, but um, definitely something that's worth, worthwhile, I think, for, for pretty much everyone. So, yeah, great advice, William. Thank you for that segment. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Right, welcome back, guys. I'm now going to throw over to Brett. You're going to be speaking to us today about market sentiment. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Uh, and, and in particular, I want to talk about the uh, the time to buy index, which uh, which measures consumer sentiment towards purchasing dwellings. Uh, so, like most indexes, an index of of value of 100 represents the point at which the optimists uh, are exactly offsetting the pessimists. Uh, so values below 100 would indicate that pessimists outweigh optimists and, and obviously vice versa. Uh, I wanted to touch on this uh, in light of what's happened in the market over the last few months. So the the auction market's been really hot this year. Uh, the clearance rate for last weekend nationwide was was at 80%, which shows it's, uh, it's a a seller's market based on those metrics, but also the volume of auctions being held in the in the major capitals has been quite strong as well. Uh, and the data from CoreLogic that shows that for the previous three months, every capital city and every regional area of, of the country is in positive territory with dwelling values. So the market's been strong. Mm. In regards to what the... Um, the, the index that I mentioned, the time to buy index is showing. Uh, and this comes back to what happened when when COVID first hit and what people were thinking. I'm sure we can probably reflect back when everyone was forecasting massive drops in housing prices. And, you know, a lot of the forecasters were saying up to 30% drops yeah. in average dwellings. Uh, 
Funnily enough, though, what actually did happen, though, in July of 2020, the number of new home loans provided to first home buyers exceeded 10,000 for the first time in 10 years. So in really? this pandemic, yep, <laughs> first home buyers came into the market stronger than ever. Um, and, and that actually reached 14,000 in November. Uh, so first home buyers entering the market through the midst of the pandemic was actually at record levels. Wow. And the interesting thing is based on the consumer sentiment, which are mainly based, you know, surveys that are taken of a, just a cross section of the community, 30% of consumers expected house prices to fall by up to 10% over the next 12 months was basically the sentiment back in April and May of last year. Mm. Uh, and so the index that I referred to in April last year was at 82.1. So a pretty pessimistic measure. Yeah. Now, as of today, it's actually currently sitting at 123 points. Sorry, that's a different one. 116.4. So the time to buy index shows that the majority of people are positive and it's actually dropped in the last month. It, it, it hit its recent peak at 120.7 last month in February. Wow. So considering the majority of people, you know, tend to think about things, especially significant purchases for a while before they actually commit, if this is what the sentiment is, you would sort of expect that the the market activity for the foreseeable future is going to continue to be strong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, and Brett, on those numbers, that is more optimistic now than it was pessimistic at the at the depths of the um, of the lockdowns. Correct. Yeah. And, and in fact, the the number now is is actually slightly below where it was uh, in March of 2019 before the lockdowns. Oh right. Sorry. Is this March 2020? Sorry, oh, slightly higher. Sorry, I was is this because um, you know people have the people that have managed to retain their jobs have just been saving throughout that sort of pandemic period and have you know. I mean, obviously, people that have already thought about purchasing a house have just had extra funds sort of flow in if you've managed to maintain your job throughout it. I think it has to be a, a bit bit of that, Steph, but I think it's also the interest rates have, have you know, they plummeted through, well, when I say plummeted, they, they continued to drop throughout the pandemic. So they were at, at yeah. the record lows. So affordability is, is still relatively high in that perspective. Mm. I, I think it's also good to, to see how this compares with general consumer sentiment, which is purely about the economy and, and willing to buy other goods. Mm. So I was able to find some other data that talks about um, not only the time to buy a dwelling index, but the unemployment expectations index. So okay. that's currently sitting at 112. So similarly positive. Uh, yeah. But the time to buy a major household item is at 123.7. Right. So <laughs> Go Harvey Norman. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting to look at how the the mark the media and everything that was portrayed last year of doom and gloom never really eventuated. We did have a little bit of a lull in in property volumes being sold, and the prices did stagnate a bit, but they never really dropped more than a couple of percent. Yeah, and, and now they're all on the rise. So. I guess you've just got to be mindful of of what the naysayers are saying. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but I think. Right, you need are you to... saying um, actual houses versus apartments? I know we always have this conversation, but is it has there been a rise with people actually purchasing apartments, or is it still, you know, freestanding houses? Uh, so this is all dwelling stuff. Not yeah. It's a, it's a basket of both. So I haven't actually okay. got the breakdown in the sentiment or the the data across the separate segments. Um, but it's it's a the actual data that talks about positive growth uh, and and all of the auction rates they just bundle up both houses and apartments. Yeah, because it'd just be interesting to know if people are making that shift and saying, well, look, you know, I've got the money to do it. I could have the house out in the burbs, but um, you know, I may as well have something more inner city that maybe has a small courtyard or um, has a balcony, and people are, are making that shift um, mm. even even with that savings, you know, and, and purchasing a property. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I, I don't have data that can support or deny that trend. Yeah, that's I mean, okay. That was, Next week, I'll get you. Next week. <laughs> well, actually, the, the other piece of data that I thought you guys might find interesting is that um, the in the three months to February, the top 25% of values had led the growth in the markets of Sydney, Mil Melbourne, Brisbane, Darwin, and the ACT. So mm -hmm. the expensive homes have grown the most in the last three months. Yeah. Right. 
Mm. So good signs for any developers releasing premium product. I wonder who that is. Do you know any? (laughs) I can think of a a fantastic development we've been looking at in Armadale that's just come to market. So really premium finishes, display suite open. Anyone interested can certainly contact us and we'll put you in touch with the selling agent. Actually, Brett, I was um, was at work uh, yesterday and I had a staff member that came up and asked about uh, the property that was uh, in Armadale and said that she had seen a very lovely flyer uh, that landed in her letterbox and she was very impressed with that. what the Carlisle is looking like. Oh, fantastic. That's great. <laughs> good to hear. Yeah. Well, and it's good to hear that those things actually get delivered. <laughs> Be careful, Brett. <laughs> Shout out to Australia Post, right? Yeah. <laughs> what else can you tell us, Brett, about the market? Uh, look, that, they were the major things. Look, the, the only other part of it when I was, I was reviewing some of this information that I thought was in, interesting is that even with the positive sentiment and, and the dwelling prices growing and interest rates low, uh, there's a, a graph of the OECD data showing how Australian house prices have been outpacing incomes and rents. So it looks like it's getting back to its all-time high of uh, of price to rent and price to income ratios reaching around 160, which is uh, higher than it's 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 ever been. I think the peak was uh, was in 2017 when it reached 160. It dropped a bit in the last couple of years, but it's approaching those levels again. Right. Interesting which, times. Well, and, and that makes sense too. That if dwelling prices are continually increasing, I'm not seeing any reasons for wages to be increasing at the moment. If anything, I'd say it's a pretty competitive mark for wages. So other than regulations pushing wages up, I don't think there'd be too many businesses offering increases in wages when there's probably a lot of people out of work. Not only that, I think a lot of businesses can sort of, whether they are or aren't doing okay, I mean, the, the pandemic is one of those things where they can sort of get away with saying, well, you know, <laughs> It's been a rough time in, in all kinds of markets and, and we don't have to put salaries up. So. Yep. yep. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, look, guys, we might start move on to the next topic. We're going to take another quick break and we'll come back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Uh, welcome back. Now, Joel, final topic for the day. You're going to be speaking to us about the dynamics that are pushing growth stocks around in the short term. Yes. If, it's, uh, if you've been a growth stock investor in the last four weeks, you'd be wondering what the hell you're doing. But um, look, it, it's a natural part of uh, just investing in the stock market. Um, We've certainly seen a, a major bifurcation in the performance of value stocks versus growth stocks in the last four weeks. Um, we're seeing that uh, many of those old world industrial type businesses, commodities, resources, banks, uh, those businesses that are leveraged to the opening up of the uh, global economy, they're really starting to perform quite well. Uh, whereas the, the winners from the last 12 months and probably the winners for the last two or three years uh, being technology stocks and growth stocks, healthcare, biotechnology, uh, innovative new world uh, uh, businesses, they're certainly uh, uh, taking it pretty heavily at this point in time. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. Uh, we've certainly seen that as the global economy starts to open up and as uh, we start to get some more confidence that economic activity is heading in the direction of getting back to normality. We're starting to see interest rates, uh, global interest rates start to rise. So we've seen that the US 10-year Treasury bond yield uh, actually increased from, uh, actually has actually increased up to its highest level since January of 2020, uh, hitting around about uh, 1.86% last night uh, on the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Now, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is an important 
yield because it's basically the global benchmark for how interest rates are set around the world. Everybody takes their lead. Uh, that's including Australian mortgages, uh, Australian central banks, European mortgages, Asian mortgages, all tend to price themselves off the 10-year US Treasury yield. So with a rising US 10-year Treasury yield, that means that the discount rate on, on uh, valuations used to, to discount future cash flows that companies earn, any businesses that are likely to earn the vast majority of their profits in future years rather than in current years, those cash flows are going to be discounted at a much higher rate. So they're worth less in today's dollars than what they would have been had we have had a lower discount rate. And so growth stocks, as a result of that, are finding that, uh, that their valuations are coming under pressure and have certainly been hit the hardest as a result of this rising 10-year Treasury bond yield. But we're also seeing it in the 30-year Treasury bond yield as well, where um, the US 30-year Treasury bond yield has now reached levels not seen since August of 2019, uh, breaching the 2.5% level. So once again, that 30-year Treasury bond yield is an important benchmark interest rate for the setting of mortgages as well as uh, other government um, government uh, bonds around the world. So when, uh, when, the, when the price of, uh, of interest rates is increasing uh, and the cost of money is increasing, uh, those businesses, which are growth companies, that we expect to earn the bulk of their profits in later years because they're fast-growing businesses and those and the, and the future uh, profits are, are what we're investing for. Uh, they're getting hit hardest. They're adjusting to that to that discount rate, and and that's what we're seeing today. Uh, but we're also seeing that banks, financials, um, which lend, which borrow on short terms and lend longer term, where they're able to capture a larger differential between. The interest rate spreads, so they borrow from us as depositors on a short-term basis, lend to us as mortgage borrowers uh, on a longer-term basis. When the longer-term interest rates uh, are increasing uh, and that interest rate spread between short-term and long-term interest rates are increasing, banks are actually able to make greater profits. And we're seeing banks and financials actually rally as a result of that. Now, this is not the first time that I've seen a, a major rotation out of uh, fast-growing growth stocks into more value-oriented old world or, or uh, traditional type of uh, economy, uh, old economy businesses. Seen this, uh, we saw this again uh, in 2016, in the latter stages of 2016, when technology stocks really took a shot in the arm. <clears throat> Sorry, they really, uh, they, they really took a shot um, to the head. Uh, where old world industrial uh, old world industrial businesses took a shot to the arm. Bit of a difference there. <laughs> there is a difference there. A shot to yes. the head, a shot in the arm. There's two differences. There, right? <laughs> a shot in the arm juices you up and a shot in the head kills yeah, you. Yeah, that's true. You definitely need your estate plan. <laughs> that's all right. But we saw this. We saw this when Trump got elected, and everybody thought that Trump was going to provide huge stimulus. We saw interest rates rise in, uh, into the early early phases of 2017 and the latter phases of 2016. Um, but but ultimately, longer term, yes, interest rates are an adjustment that needs to take place in these valuations. But ultimately, fast-growing stocks have the added advantage that they will grow into their valuations and they'll grow at a much faster pace. Than your traditional old world industrial businesses. So while there is a short-term rotation that's going on, none of this is suggesting that this is, a, this is it for growth stocks at all. This is just more of a, a consolidation and a correction with, with you know a longer-term uptrend. Say you know when when this 10-year Treasury yield comes out and you know growth stocks were hoping that they'd be rated higher, what happens to them? Can that actually be so detrimental that it could really ruin a business? No, it won't ruin the underlying business. It's more of an impact on the, on the way that you value the shares. Right. And that value those shares. So it's not going to totally flatten them. You know, people go, oh, well, that's that's just not going to rise at the same level I thought it was. And, you know. No, no, no. So, so the, these adjustments that are going on have absolutely nothing to do with the underlying performance of the business. Right. Um, most of these companies that we look at within the growth area of the market tend to not have large amounts of debt. Okay. Um, most of them actually tend to fund themselves through cash flows and uh, equity that they raise through the capital markets, through the equity capital markets, rather than going to the borrowing debt. So it's not so much a concern that they're not going to be able to pay their debts or meet their financial obligations or that 
the person down the street's going to buy less and less of their product. This mm. is more of a financial calculation of valuation right. that's going on right now. Okay. This is this is around investors who are trying to put an assessment of value on the particular shares, and they need to. And and one of the most common ways in which investors will uh, assess the valuation of a share is to forecast what they're likely. Uh, profits will be into the future and discount them back into a present value. Uh, and when you discount them back into a present value, you need to use a discount rate. And those discount rates are essentially marked off what the US 10-year Treasury bond yield is. Mm. So, um, and, and then you adjust for that to have a... So the US 10-year Treasury bond yield is what we call the risk-free rate of return. Okay, so... There's, it's, it's the best proxy that you can get in the financial markets to earn a return with zero risk. They essentially are assuming that the US is the dominant, most important financial uh, contributor to the global economy mm-hmm. and that um, the chances of a default on the US government 10-year treasury bond is almost practically at zero. So the US 10-year treasury bond yield is a proxy for the disc, uh, for the uh, for the uh, risk-free rate of return that you could earn on assets at any one point in time. Now, in in uh, analysing a stock's share price or valuation, analysts will then put a premium on top of that discount of, on that uh, risk-free rate to adjust for the risk of ordinary equity and businesses being and, and the risk of businesses defaulting. So you might have a 1.75% US Treasury bond yield, but the actual discount rate might be a premium of three or four or five percent on top of that, in which you're using to discount the rate of uh, cash flows into a present value terms today to come up with a valuation of what you think that business is worth. So any increase in interest rates is going to increase the discount and reduce the value of those cash flows in present value terms. And that's that's essentially what we're seeing today. Is there's an adjustment going on with those valuations, but Ultimately, the, the nice thing about investing in growth stocks is that over time, those businesses will still grow at a much faster pace than old world industrial businesses. So while their valuations might be marked down, the actual value of the entity is still growing at a much faster pace over the medium to longer term than what an old world industrial business would be. So yes, there's an adjustment that's going on in the very short term, but do we think that this is something that's catastrophic for these businesses and, and for your investment in these types of companies? Absolutely not. And to, and what we tend to find is that this adjustment will tend to take place over a three to six month period of time. And then all of a sudden, everyone starts to get back to focusing in on what's the, what's the speed in which these companies are growing. Yeah. Um, so there's a short term markdown in the very short term. But ultimately, as we work through that, people adjust their valuations. They then start to say, OK, well, we've now adjusted our, our valuation based on this new discount rate that we need to apply. Now let's focus on what the company is actually going to earn because that's ultimately going to drive what the value of that business is going to be over the long term. Mm-hmm. So we saw this, like I said, at the end of 2016, early 2017, and within about four months' time, that correction had taken place and everyone then focused on, okay, well, where's the fastest growth happening? The mm-hmm. fastest growth was happening in those growth stocks. So mm-hmm. growth stocks by the end of 2017 ended up performing over value stocks by quite some margin, albeit that they trailed by about 10 or 15% for a period of time. And so I see that this is just uh, something similar to what we what we saw back in 2016 and 17. And ultimately, we've just got to rise through these rotations. They happen from time to time. No one strategy uh, performs in all market conditions. But when you look at the current economic environment that we're in, there's absolutely no reason to think that this is the end of the recovery. Mm. Um, you know, everything that we look at from the fundamentals, the macro, the recovery in the global economy, earnings growth in all businesses, it's all in an upward trajectory coming out of a major a major secular downturn. Well, that all sounds really positive. Just before we leave it there today, any potential growth stocks that, that you'd like to point out that you, you think are, are going to do really well? Um, we've certainly been active in the last four or five weeks. We trimmed, uh, we trimmed some of our tactical asset allocation. We probably needed to trim it a little bit more aggressively in hindsight. But, hey, look, you know, we're, we're, we're living in a, uh, in a real-world um, real, real time environment, yeah. um, but we have been making some rotations into new stocks. Uh, we still stick to our criteria. We still want great quality, high quality businesses with with a level of uh, economic moat around them that protects their revenue growth moving forward. Um, 
with this current correction going on, we expect that uh, we'll start to see some more of these types of businesses that we want to get involved in start to base and set up for ourselves to be buying over the next six to eight weeks. But, you know, they don't pop up, you know, the sorts of businesses that we're looking for don't pop up, you know, every day. You've mm. got to be scouring the markets on a daily basis and you've got to be hunting and stalking. And, and when the opportunity presents, you've got to be prepared to pull the trigger. So we're we're going, in, we, we always, during a correction, go into overdrive with our stock screens to yeah. make sure that we're identifying those one or two or three gems that always pop up through these corrective phases. But yeah, in the short term, we're going through a bit of underperformance. That happens. We're comfortable with it. Most of our investors should be comfortable with it. And if you've been hunting around in the growth stock area over the past two, three, four years, you're well and truly ahead of the old value stocks. And uh, we see no reason why, um, you know, once we get through this little, uh, I guess, interest rate tantrum, that we shouldn't be back to a point where, uh, you know, great businesses outperform again. All right, guys, we're going to have to move on to our last and final uh, topic for the day, and that is you can't be serious. Brett, I can't actually see you, so I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I'm going to give a shout-out to a guy by the name of Del Hall, who would probably never listen to us, but anyway, I, I take my hat off to you. What he's done, I'm not sure if it's a short-term shot in the arm or a long-term shot in the head, but uh, <laughs> he's a brewery owner for one, which is a tick, but he's decided uh, that for Lent – he's going to go on a strict beer-only diet. Yeah. Okay. And it's not the first time. He did it once before. Um, so the days between the 17th of February and the 4th of April, so for 46 days, only drinking nothing but beer. And this is where it gets interesting. The previous time he did it, he lost 50 pounds. Wow. He'd yeah. be full of hot air. Yes. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Uh, and also another part of it that he, he raised over $10,000 for a local charity in the midst of doing it. Was it for his liver? Yeah, Maybe probably a liver charity. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just having a look at the picture, and it doesn't say what strength of beer it is. So if it's his, if it's his own brewery, I'm sure he can probably concoct a, a brew that he likes and, and may have a few more health benefits. Well, well there you go. Whoever said that uh, beer is put on weights, they're, they're lying. Just don't eat with it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the key. Um, what about you, Louis, today? What's yours? Uh, I don't know if you guys are into surfing much, uh, but do you know a place called Pedra Branca? No. It is a big wave surfing location, which is uh, uh, which is 26 k's off the coast of Tasmania. Um, Pedra Branca is basically a, a rock. Uh, they call it an island, but it's basically a big rock. And the waves that are there... Uh, have been measured at up to 13.8 metres high. Wow. So apparently some crazy Tasmanians uh, like to go there and surf the big waves from time to time. And in the news this week was uh, was about how one of these surfers uh, had, to, um, uh, had to exit a wave that he was about to go down the face of and he could see he was going to get wiped off, so he elected to jump off his surfboard instead of... Uh, uh taking the dump um and the surfboard was was never found Ouch. until recently in queensland <laughs> 2700 kilometers away um a fisherman has seen this thing floating in the water and uh, and has picked it up and recognized it as a as a surfboard and it's covered in mollusks and things um and uh so this Surfboard has drifted from Tasmania all the way up to Queensland. Amazing. And incredible. the water currents actually go the other way. The water current on the east coast of Australia goes from north to south. So the right. theory is this surfboard actually went all the way past New Zealand and then back wow. around to Queensland. Wow. That is fantastic. That's I love incredible. it. Did he get his surfboard back? Well, you don't know. And he got his surfboard back. He did. Fantastic. He was reunited with it this week. That I is hope hilarious. He got his will. Joel, what have you got for us this morning? Well, the name Musk and the word snake have been used together by some people, um, not myself. (laughs) (laughs) But but Elon Musk is having all sorts of problems with lizards and snakes. Apparently, (laughs) he can't extract enough oil out of them. 
No. Oh, um, <laughs> no. Uh, in actual fact, uh, Tesla is facing a bit of an uphill battle to try and complete its German Gigafactory because of a problem with snakes and lizards within the forest that surrounds its new Gigafactory in a German city called Grunheide. Uh, Musk is expecting about 500,000 cars a year to be produced from this Gigafactory. Uh, starting in July of this year. However, he's faced an enormous amount of uh, difficulty in completing the project because of uh, issues with um, hibernating snakes and hibernating lizards and not being able to find them to, re to remove them from the area and relocate them. So uh, there you go. Hey? Yeah, there you go. Well, it's not a snake on a plane anymore. It's going to be snakes on a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Elon would have just gone up there and uh, and talked to the snakes in their own language. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we would have been able to communicate. You never know. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to have to leave it there for today. But um, have a fabulous weekend, and boys, enjoy the uh, the football tonight. I hope uh, Collingwood does have a win for you because I'm it's very rare. So <laughs> I'm hoping so too, Steph, and, and it's in your best interest to make sure that they win. <laughs> I'm confident yeah, they've got the will to win. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. Have a, have a fabulous one. Thanks, everyone, Bye. for tuning in. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.